Hello, this is not Richard Dreyfus, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to the 430 Movie Podcast at 430movie.com. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And we have some great <laughs> guests with us today. And uh, you'll come to know him as a regular on this podcast. Uh, he's a, a longtime friend, one of the most knowledgeable people in the history of uh, Star Trek about Star Trek. Um, he is uh, passionate and creative and super talented, um, and he is the... Uh, co-writer, uh, director, and editor of the beloved Star Trek film Free Enterprise, and also created the amazing VAM, that's uh, special features on the Next Generation uh, reissues, and as well as Enterprise, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, Hi. no, it's it's great. And another person you met on Talk Trek. On Talk Trek, yes. Yeah, uh, I, I was saying how we met uh, doing his radio show uh, on Talk Trek. Many years ago. So many, many, years, many ago. years ago. I think that being here uh, is going to be more pleasing than not being here. <laughs> and, it is uh, not logical, but it is true. We thankfully didn't scare off our next guest. He's come for uh, he's come for seconds. Um, uh, and uh, in addition to having created the hit TNT series Perception, uh, and of course, as we know, uh, TNT is fond of canceling hit shows. Um, we he also was a writer producer on Star Trek Voyager. And uh, Enterprise, I was going to say Star Trek Enterprise, but uh, as we know, that was uh, called Enterprise until they decided to call it Star Trek, which probably is a whole other episode. Mr. Michael Sussman. Michael, welcome back. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So they're probably wondering what we're going to talk about What shall we talk about? Thank you, Tote. (laughs) Um, We decided, because this is a show that extols what we love about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe, much as Free Enterprise did... um, we're going to do guilty pleasures. Episodes that are generally loathed that we love for some for some reason. They're episodes that may not get all the love. They may not be the city on the edge of forevers or the yesterday's enterprise or the, the uh, year of hell or the... Uh, the flute one. The flute one, <laughs> the inner light. May not be any of those episodes, but uh, they're episodes for whatever reason... We love them, and we're going to talk about them, and maybe when we're done, you'll love them too. So none of us have talked about this before. None of us know what's going on. Right. Not unlike any of these uh, podcasts we've done. But um, we are going to talk about Star Trek Guilty Pleasures. It stays fresh that way. Keeps it, Keeping it fresh, keeping it real. So I'm going to start uh, by asking Rob uh, <laughs> Guilty Pleasure. Well, I'm going to take everybody back to the first season of the original series. And, I, you know, I didn't know that you were going to ask me this. But one of my favorite guilty pleasure ups, actually one of my favorite, indeed favorite Star Trek episodes of the original series, The Alternative Factor. Captain's log, stardate 3087.6. Investigating an uncharted planet, we've encountered a badly injured human being. You came! Thank the heavens we can still stop him! I want facts. The entire magnetic field in this solar system simply blinked. What you're describing is non-existence. I tell you, we're dealing with a creature capable of destroying worlds. Are you deaf as well as blind? It'll do you no good. I'll chase you into the very fires of hell. He must be stopped, held, destroyed if necessary. Do you know what you're saying? Total, complete, absolute annihilation. Don't! Not you! Oh, come on. You just said guilty pleasure. Oh, man. You know, I didn't think they were, I didn't say mean bad. Okay, I meant okay. guilty pleasure. Here's the thing. I've been listening to... I, I wrote one piece of Star Trek fan fiction I was going to submit to the Strange New Worlds anthologies. Right. And it was all about how when the Genesis device went off in Star Trek II, it actually blew Khan into the room 
that the two Lazari were fighting in. Oh, that's funny. At the end of the alternative factor, and it, it turns out that the three of them <laughs> go off together, and they left. They, they left, left the, the room. room not to not know what was going to happen. And he was the Khan was the counterbalance that that caused the t- the universes for not between the two Lazari, if you want to call them that. The Lazari. The three of them went off like a Hope and Crosby road picture, and that was it. That was the end. That's hilarious. Now I'll tell you why I, I I've always loved this movie because when I was a kid, uh, is it Admiral Comac? I don't remember if it's Admiral Comac who comes on and says that that when the when the oh, universe the whole universe is blinked out. Yeah, the whole is it Admiral Comac or Comac is I'm not sure. Comac is in Tribbles. It's Comac and Tribbles. Yeah, you're probably right. He's the guy from the Allstate commercials. Right, but the, you're the good hands with Tribbles. The the when I was a kid, I couldn't. That was like the worst thing that I could imagine happening. The end of existence, like yeah. the universe blinked. Right, and and it was something that you knew as a kid. I'm like, wow, what. What was gonna? What was going on? And then, of course, to me, it just got so strange because you had one Lazarus ship that was out at Vasquez Rocks, the bubble ship that looks like it cost a dollar ninety nine. But then the other, <laughs> the other ship didn't have the actual canopy on it; it just had the piece of metal, and yeah. it was on the set. It was on set. Yeah, yeah. And to my young mind, who I, I was probably five when I started watching the original series, yeah. seventy two, when it went into strip sure. syndication, this episode to me was was something I thought was as a child, much better than it actually was. I didn't understand how awful it was. It had already been set up as something that, it, for whatever reason, fired my imagination. I thought the whole thing about two aspects of this man, one was from the matter universe, one was from the antimatter universe, and if they were to meet... One had a Band-Aid, the other didn't. It was just, I mean, to my mind, as a kid, this is what, you know, I, I, liked, I liked Spock's brain when I was a kid, too. You know, but fu- the, the alternative factor had a weirdness to it that I loved. It's funny, you know, Rob, you, you're hearing you wax nostalgically and, and, and passionately about that episode. You know, my, my first instinct was, oh, my God, what a, it's just an awful, irredeemable episode. But then you mentioned that great teaser. And I was thinking, that really is a great teaser. It's a great the, teaser. The universe is winking out of existence, and it's like the stakes couldn't be higher. And it's like this epic tapestry. And then it becomes a show about these two guys running around. I mean, it's like almost as bad as Beale and Loki, you know. Now, now. But Let's oh, not go there yet. Oh, okay. So, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it's interesting. I mean, because, Rob, isn't it true, though, that that was really racked by a lot of production issues as well? I mean, there was a recasting of the lead actor. I, absolutely. I mean, it was a mess. And you read, you read whether in Cushman's book or other people's accounts, that episode was pretty much irredeemable, irredeemably it was doomed during production. There was no way it was going to be good. Yeah. But, you know, when Star Trek is an interesting animal because as as we started watching it as children, but as I've moved through my life and returned back to these episodes again and again, some have aged quite well, whereas others have not. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I, I find that interesting about Star Trek and how's, how we've grown and aged. There's always been sort of new new Trek. And the alternative factor is one of those episodes that I did not recognize as being awful until I, until I was probably a year later. <laughs> but as a child, I, I, I did love that episode. It, there, was a, there was wonder in it for me. It's funny. I, this is not my guilty pleasure, but hearing what you have to say about how as you grow older and more mature, your, your passion for certain episodes wanes and, and – and, and other episodes, it grows like you know, um, eddies and currents in the in, in the temporal uh, vortex. But um, you know, I had that. I went through that as the with the empath, where as a kid I hated the empath, Me too. and as I got older, I came to really appreciate you know what a fine episode that is. Mostly because of the filmmaking, the surrealistic, uh, non-existent sets, and and also uh, the performance uh, as as Jem uh, or Jem Jem yeah, and uh, Bem is the Animated animated show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the stakes are very high in the empath. I mean, as you're, you're I thought it was boring when I was a kid, but yeah. as I got older, you realize what the emotional stakes are in that episode yeah. and the physical stakes. So the alternative factor, which uh, by many is considered perhaps the worst episode of the original series, but it's interesting. Again, I think you've made a really good argument for why you love that and why there, there's merit in that in that episode. Um, and you know, again, that you, you know, you can't really penalize it for the production problems because. It was so you know the the last minute recasting, the last the minute writing. Um, it was it was a total mess. And what was the next episode? City, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know you go from the lowest to low to the highest highs. Um, but uh, um, really interesting. So Michael, I'd ask you the same question. You know what what's your guilty guilty Star Trek pleasure? 
Uh, well, I'm going to cheat and dip into the uh, film franchise and say Star Trek The Motion Picture. is just beginning. William Shatner, take us out, is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chapel. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Gene Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. Which I actually no have a feeling is probably not going <laughs> to... I think everyone's going to... Them fighting yeah. words. It's just a pleasure. It's, you know, a, a film that was you know much aligned when it, when it came out. And still is. And still is. Um, but I think it, it's held up better than, than many other uh, of the films. And I, I just know... You know, I was I was fairly young when it came out initially, uh, but I know now whenever I'm you know dipping into you know my iTunes library to 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 watch, you just get in the mood. I want to watch some Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the motion picture is almost always the one that I I turn to first, probably because I've you know burned Khan into my memory. But right. um, you know, it has amazing production values. The cast looks great. Yeah. Um, uh, and nobody liked the costumes. I think the costumes were kind of cool. I think the costumes are great. Um, Me too. Uh, you know, the production, the Star Trek production values, I think, were never that high right. in, until ever you know, again. They, until maybe arguably the JJ films. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, the the biggest strike against the film, and I remember seeing it as like an eleven year old, and and. And me and all my friends and my brother, and we were trying to convince ourselves how great it was because we'd been waiting for this movie sure. forever, and we were not going to be disappointed by it. But, and we wouldn't even admit it to ourselves that that there was a problem with the film. But the biggest problem at the time was that it felt repetitive, it, it, story wise. Mm-hmm. It was the Changeling, Doomsday Machine, uh, you know, a mishmash, little of a immunity couple, syndrome, immunity yeah, syndrome, yeah. things we'd seen One before. One of Rob's favorites. Great episodes. Um, but Star Trek has gone back to the idea well so many times on so many different right. movies and TV shows. The motion picture was just kind of the first the movie. The beginning to... of that. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I forgive it for that now because there mm-hmm. were plenty of episodes of, you know, some of the later series that are reminiscent of, you know, the original um, – it, it, I can enjoy them for what they were. So when I watch Star Trek the Motion Picture now, I, f- I don't think about the Changeling or or the Immunity Syndrome. It feels like a fresh, a fresher story, yeah, and, I, and yeah. I forget that disappointment. It's, and I, and I t- you take that disappointment out, and some <laughs> film is a lot more enjoyable. The funny thing is, a lot of the negative publicity for the original uh, movie came from Leonard Nimoy himself. Mm, right. He was the first on the bad mouthing line. Uh, for this film, because they hadn't listened to him, because they didn't listen to him. Well, and he was because about because that. because in the, you know, in the theatrical release, they don't include his the tears his tears scene, his his you know character changing realization that you know he he weeps for V'ger as a brother because he understands that is where he would be if he had pursued total logic to its full potential, and. That is one of the most amazing realizations of this character that we've ever seen before. 
And I completely agree with his feelings at the time. And, of course, on the director's edition, we go back and we include that scene. Um, But it, it was just so sad to me that for all those years, Nimoy was at the forefront of of dissing the motion picture uh, at every opportunity, every interview. He said, well, this isn't really where we wanted to go and all that sort of stuff, right. which is very sad. You know, as a kid, like I, I love – Star Trek The Motion Picture is my favorite Star Trek movie, bar none. Mm-hmm. It's, it might not be the best, but it's my favorite. And if you go back and you look at that film, all of the character interplay – is some of the best character interplay we ever saw from Kirk, Absolutely. Spock, and McCoy. The individual scenes where, where there's that scene where, where Kirk and McCoy are talking about whether Spock would put his own interests mm-hmm. ahead of the ships. Uh, that's a great scene. When they're in the, in the observation lounge and, and I, I be, I, on Vulcan I began sensing a consciousness. And see, that is a collection of great, great, great character scenes which we love. It's just I think that the overall pacing is, is monotone. I think Star Trek: The Motion Picture is not badly paced. It's mono, It's a monotone mm. film. There are no even when there's gigantic ships being devoured by data processing mm-hmm. V'gers taking away those Katenga class battle cruisers. It's still kind of flat. You don't you don't feel it. You don't feel it the way you feel space battles in Star Wars or something. Right. But yet I you think know? you're onto something, Rob, because I do feel like you know it never recovers from that first ten minutes. The ten minutes are, are much more heightened. So you're right that there's a, a, a and it's not a lethargic pace; it's a monotone pace. But you have this huge space battle at the beginning that's really epic. I and prefer intense. to think of it as a consistent pace. And okay, fair <laughs> enough. And um, and and you know, so you you think, oh wow, I'm warming up for something really incredible. I mean, three Klingon ships, which looked amazing. The makeup was amazing. They spoke in Klingon. It was it was great. And they're taken out, and it's great Jerry Goldsmith music that has been used ad nauseum ever since. Right. Um, but uh, and but then the, the movie never reaches that kind of, in in terms of what an audience that now has seen Star Wars and seen some of these epic space adventures is expecting. Right. Um, it, it, it then becomes 2001-esque as opposed to Star Wars-esque. Right. And I, I think that is what hurt it then in terms of the larger perception, yeah. the expectations, and continues to hurt it now because there's a sense that it's long and it's slow and it's meandering, which I have to agree with Michael. You know, when I throw on a Star Star Trek movie, which is more often than I probably should, um, it, it, it's it's usually Star Trek one that I find myself watching. Again, we talked about it. We all know Star Trek two by heart. We've seen sure. it so many times. You know, it's certainly you know the most wildly entertaining of the Trek movies. But Star Trek the Motion Picture has scope and it has scale. It has feature film production values and it has those great moments. People say the cast is flat. Viewer, I, I love those moments. Like viewer off, and when he even you know silly is when he winks at Chekhov when they finally make uh, warp right. speed and. And I, I feel that there is, you know, um, a, a frivolity that people don't acknowledge. And yet there's also the drama of Kirk being so alone. When, after he has the fight with McCoy, you know, you're expecting them to bond like they used to. And those doors close and there's that beautiful Jerry Goldsmith music, right. you know, sort of leaving him isolated and silhouette. It's just Well, one of the crazy. things I, I love about the first movie is that all of our favorite characters start out in places that we're not familiar with them being. They are not the same characters that we remember. They have gone through life since then. Uh, but by the course of the film, we see them slowly get back to their original positions and their original comfort zones and the way that they function the best. And it's that journey that is so fascinating to me, seeing these actors go through that. And it's really joyous to me that by the end we have our old, you know, we have our old people back. I remember in 50-year mission when I was writing the story, somebody was telling, sorry, at the premiere of um, Star Trek The Motion Picture, literally, as soon as the movie ended, Leonard jumped up from his seat and like ran down the aisle to find the editor. And he was <laughs> furious that um, that scene had been right. cut. That's what he was thinking at the end yep. of the, the big premiere in Washington, D.C. He was like, why did you take my, my scene yeah. out? And he's not wrong, but you got to remember, I mean, Leonard was a guy who resisted coming back to Star Trek over and over again. Right. He, he wasn't going to do Phase 2. You know, he, he wasn't going to do In Thy Image, mm-hmm. the movie. He was, you know, and it wasn't until Katzenberg came and resolved the merchandising dispute yeah. and threw a lot of money at him. Yeah. But I think they also said, we're going to give you more creative input, more control, which is something that Leonard craved. He always had an opinion about this character. 
And uh, so when he found out that he had been ignored and that he didn't really have that meaningful But the thing input, is, he wasn't ignored. It was just the fact that the studio forced them to have a movie at this length. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't get a final cut. And it was racing to the ending yeah. when they had to be in the theaters. Well, we've we've all and talked to heard all, the stories yeah. about the slugs that were putting up as the visual effects. They didn't know how long the visual effects would be. So it's like this shot's gonna be you know two minutes long or whatever. Yeah. And they, they, there was no ability to, to to open up the cut and they change couldn't, it. They couldn't so they just had it. to throw in two minutes regardless of yeah. whether it made it should have been thirty seconds or or not. Another thing about Star Trek the Motion Picture that, and another thing. Well, <laughs> the in universe continuity or canon right. that the motion picture created was, I think, unprecedented mm. in pop culture history, where you have these these characters, these actors, that these TV actors that were actually brought back to what was at the time the most expensive movie made yeah. uh, that Hollywood was making. Ten years later. Ten years later, and they, they first of all, they accounted for that time, mm-hmm. and it all seemed like, okay, this universe has, has grown, and it's moved, right. and it's changed, and it moved on, and everybody who contributed to the universe was thinking about how that would work as yeah. opposed to making some random there was a lot of thought put put in on every level of that film it felt you know it felt real and it felt like it didn't it it wasn't negating anything that we've seen before yes. no yeah. and that's right and you'd never seen earth yeah. of the 23rd century you know and and it expanded the universe the way we had never seen before and that alone was captivating and transporting and i don't think anyone has done as good of job as good a job of, of expanding the Star Trek universe canonically, right? The way Star Trek the motion picture does. That's a great a great point. Is even the idea that Decker is um, uh, Will Decker is the son of, of Will Decker, which isn't mentioned specifically in the movie, but it's Matt clear Decker. Matt Decker, yeah. yeah, and from Doomsday Machine, and and it is in the the novel, the novel that Gene Roddenberry got four hundred thousand uh, dollars to write. Uh, much to the chagrin of Harold Livingston, uh, the, the screenwriter of the movie, uh, with Gene. But, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of that. You know, even when Kirk is confused when he comes on board the ship and can't find his way through the corridors, um, there's so much that leans into what we know of the original series and respects that three, those three years of uh, the original show and builds on that. And it, it feels like it all takes place in the same universe. It doesn't sort of erase what we've seen before or pay lip service to the fact that this is the same universe when, you know, in some cases it does not share that aesthetic. This did, and it was all the the better for it. And that's part of what made it so fun. To build on what Darren said earlier, I think to a certain degree the audience, and I'd probably have to include myself, wanted to see those relationships exactly as we had left them. From the beginning, right. Yes, from the beginning. And it was asking a lot of the audience to show that a number of years had passed Mm -hmm. and they all weren't best buddies anymore right. and when Spock comes aboard they're questioning what his motives are which seems like to, you wouldn't believe that for 10 seconds right. in an episode of the original show they were best buddies and you saw that these friendships had basically you know either deteriorated or come apart right. and they didn't know who they were anymore and that is a really challenging thing to ask for a you know a big blockbuster film Absolutely. watching it now all these years later I can appreciate it and see the journey that they go on yeah. and you know, very wisely and for very understandable reasons, the next film and the films after that, it's kind of back to TOS it's a love land. Fact, where, yeah, yeah right. they, and they love each other, and that's great, and, and I love seeing that. But it it asked something very challenging of the audience, and you know, yeah. in retrospect, they probably shouldn't it's, have done it. That was a very uh, interesting so, choice. It's adult. It was adult. It's adult, it and adult. that is completely lost on some audiences, which is very disappointing to me. Well, I think Michael makes such a great point because, to me, I think the appeal ultimately, people give a lot of theories of why Star Trek was so popular. It comes down to family. It was about a family. Mm-hmm. And in Star Trek The Motion Picture, they're an estranged family. Yeah. You know, McCoy has become a total dick, not a curmudgeon anymore. <laughs> you know, Spock is completely removed from everyone. And uh, and trying to like forget everybody, right? And, and Kirk <laughs> is life. bitter, you know, that he's had his captaincy taken away, his right. desk job. So like a lot of people in the audience who aren't doing what they dreamed of, you know, who are accountants when they wanted to go off and do something, you know, play baseball for the Yankees. So they're looking at the characters that they aspired to be, and they see them being miserable, and it made them miserable. And I mean, then but you start to ease into you know that great scene in the in the rec deck, not the rec deck, the um, uh, the, the the lounge where McCoy says. 
says, well, lucky for you, we just happen to be going your way. And, you know, Nemoy isn't buying into, Spock isn't buying into any of the sarcasm, you know, but you start to see them slowly coming back together. So by the end, when they're a family, it's very satisfying. But you're right, it could be very off-putting. Well, another thing about Star Trek The Motion Picture, too, is it showed the universe... I mean, there were times in the original series, like in um, uh, the Corbomite Maneuver, where you see the Fisarius for the first time, mm-hmm. and the scale of the Fisarius. Like, and the last time. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we, we, we tend to think about the size of things being human size. Like right. We can only comprehend what, because we're human beings. But when V'ger shows up- Unless we're Stormy Daniels. And he was, before you fix it, 82 AUs in diameter. Right. That's bigger than our solar system. I mean, it's <laughs> ginormous. And and it really showed the the awe and wonder, and the infinitude of the universe in a way that we'd never seen before mm-hmm. on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from time, even even the Doomsday Machine, you could still see it in relation to the Enterprise and know right. how big it was. But V'ger was really big. It's really big. And the the it, it sort of as a kid, I'm like, wow, you're reminded how big. It's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Space right. is big. It's really yeah. big. <laughs> you know, and and Star Trek the Motion Picture sort of brought the infinitude of the universe to Star Trek where it didn't exist previously. Well, that, that's part of the way it's it's organized, where you see uh, you see Kirk getting the tour of the Enterprise. That's to show how big the Enterprise is. Yeah. Right. Okay. It does. It conveys Man. the sense of this yeah. massive ship, which is something I never liked about Star Trek II, where it right. felt very small. Well, even though they used the same shots. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, well, not, I'm not talking about the exterior, yeah. but the interior. Just the fact that when he lands on the cargo deck, the cargo deck is huge. Right. The wreck deck is enormous, you know, with the entire crew. There's a sense of, you know, this massive ship that could have a bowling alley. You know, they could have all these things that Franz Joseph said in the blueprints. But the the way the motion picture ramps that up is that after you've set up the Enterprise as being this huge thing, then when it's it's traveling in V'ger, you see it like tiny. You see it a half an inch long in in relation to this thing that doesn't even fit into the screen. And it's it's mind-boggling. I didn't un- understand what V'ger was even supposed to look like, by the way, until I saw the director's cut, ah. which I loved. I was lucky enough to, you know, go to that Paramount Theater for sure. the premiere, and Shatner and Nimoy were there, yeah. and Robert Wise. And it, was it, was, it, was, it was It was magical. It was magical. Yeah. And the Enterprise was there, too, yeah. the original model. Yep. Um, and I love seeing the, the, the scene where Spock cries, but I—, I, I and it's a great scene. I understand Nimoy's frustration. But I think his journey, his character's journey in that movie, even without that scene, is still there. You can He has changed. And Absolutely. That, that, again, great scene. I, I wish that was still in the final cut. But he still sells that journey for Spock in, in, the, in the I, I always thought edition. he did. I always thought he did. Well, hopefully it'll be like Blade Runner and one day there'll be the final cut. Well, and you guys can can, can be the final word on we stand Star Trek ready. the motion we picture. We stand ready Next to do that. Next year is the... 40th anniversary. anniversary. I know that's why I kind of feel like here we are talking at length about Star Trek The Motion Picture when, you know, December 7th is the 39th and next year is the 40th. I'm sure we will visit this place again. (laughs) You know, there's a lot to be mined from Star Trek The Motion Picture. But now back to Guilty Pleasures, Guilty Pleasures. Um, I'm going to have to uh, scoot back into TOS. Uh, End of the second season, nearly. Um, The Omega Glory. Captain's log, aboard the USS Exeter. What could have happened to the over 400 men and women who were on this ship? Jim, the crew didn't leave. They're still here. Wu is 462 years old. His father is well over a thousand. They sacrificed hundreds. Just to draw us out in the open. We killed thousands and they still came. Fight is done when one is dead. We gotta do something. See, <laughs> much Rob. like my reaction to yours, <laughs> you react to mine in the same way. Look, I think there is something inherently fun about this sort of alternate. The combs uh, and the yangs, the, the, the yangs, and the communists. Parallel de- development um, of this uh, society on this on this planet. Uh, look, it's silly. 
But <laughs> it's also so much fun to see Morgan Woodward running around as this crazed uh, captain. What does he say, Darren? We killed thousands and they still came. We drained four phasers and they still came. He's just wonderful. Um, and, you know, he, he, not, he, he not only uh, breaks the prime directive, he tears it apart and, and, it. and, and sprinkles <laughs> the remains on this planet. Um, yeah. It's just so fun to see where this kind of character can go. And honestly, um, the ending of it with the, you know, Kirk battling uh, uh, Captain Tracy uh for the you know ultimate battle of good against evil is so much fun and seeing Spock and McCoy with him there uh and seeing them bring out the american flag is just strangely uh wonderful to me uh, yes to you <laughs> you know you well you know another you can great bite teaser <laughs> another great teaser though like the alternative fact that oh, you know, yes. glory yeah. has a, a teaser yes. to end all teasers Whenever a second starship showed up, whenever yeah. a second Constitution class, as a kid, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. And let's remember, it was also the episode that was in the Viewmaster set. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We, and it was because Roddenberry got the pick, and since it was an episode he wrote, he right. picked that exactly. episode. Exactly. This is one of the, one of the three. I could never understand. Ka-ching. It wasn't until I was writing the book <laughs> yeah. that I found out. This is one of the three episodes that were written for the second pilot. Yep. Uh, and, of course, the... The uh, studio said, we're going to go with Where No Man Has Gone Before. By Sam Peoples. By and Sam Roddenberry Peoples. was pissed. He was. Because he wanted the one he wrote. Right. And uh, and this is, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know the story, to abuse your captain, the um, <laughs> original, um, the cage had been picked by NBC from a, a bunch of five log lines mm-hmm. uh, because NBC wanted the most complicated uh, story, which would be the hardest to, to actually produce, to see if they really could do this week after week. They did the first one, but it didn't really, much like Star Trek The Motion Picture, it didn't connect on a visceral level with them. Uh, you know, Gene would talk about the fact that it was too cerebral, but there were a lot of other reasons. So, But they, they saw something in the show, and um, the, they commissioned, a, a, almost unheard of, a second pilot, which would be more action and that, of course, became where no man has gone before. But the other two scripts, which were is the, the Wrath of Khan of TOS. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's a good analogy. The the Omega Glory, and what was the other script? I, I forgot. Uh, Mud's Women. Mud's Women. That's right. That's right. Could you imagine if they'd done Mud's, Mud's Women? There probably never would have been Star Trek. It, there would never have been Star Trek. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, again, it was not a gene. Stephen Candell wrote that. Right. And, Whatever we may think of this episode, however, is it not true that all of us can recite? I learned we the, the people. I learned of that the from States. this episode, not from the from the damn No, I I still know it word for word. I can, I can hear, hear it, and I've said it so many times that I'm not going to do it again. Here. Oh come on! Oh come on! Come Can't on. we see you on the internet doing it? By the way, you can Kirk yeah. Corner, Kirk's uh, Corner. Kirk Um But I just remember, look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we, the people. That which you call e plebnista was not written for the chiefs or the kings or the warriors or the rich or the powerful, but for all the people. Down the centuries you have slurred the meaning of the words, we... The people of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I love it. I like, you know, Darren, Darren's like, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, come on. It. Please. No, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, we really, okay, I'll do it. You have to understand. <laughs> we really twisted his arm. I'm, I'm like the Hulk. I'm always Captain Kirk. This is the act. <laughs> By the way, can I just say oh, one gosh. thing about this? The Viewmaster Reel. Why did they use shots with AMT models? Because they had no other shots. Why didn't they have the effect shots when they made them? Because they aren't 3D. Oh. Think about that. Oh. I always hated that. I felt cheated. Well, you were. I we were all cool, but it was stuff I hadn't seen in the episode. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> the rest of the episode wasn't in 3D either, Yes, was it? it was. How did they... They, they were on set, and they shot these things during the production of the episode. God, I wish did I still they had they my view master. In 3D. Oh, I, I thought it was like something they did in the yes, set. Yes, sir. That's pretty no, cool. No, no. That was on the set. 
Wow. That's before they converted things to 3D. That yeah. was the real thing. That was a, yeah. the James Cameron Avatar version of Viewmaster. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I totally agree with Rob. That teaser is great when they find, uh, you know, whenever they go to another starship and, you know, they're just using the Enterprise set, but it always gives it, like, great production value. So what was it, the Valiant they find? The Exeter. No. The Exeter, Exeter, the Exeter, <clears throat> right. I, I love that. And NCC. Then, I'm not I don't remember. And I remember, you know, uh, your ex-bosses, Berman and Braga, used to always say the problem with Enterprise was, you know, it, the Enterprise was the first ship on the scene, whereas in the original show it was somewhat more interesting because they were always the one responding right. to the emergency. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, had it been the Exeter story, is that as interesting as the ship that's responding? I don't know. Maybe it would have been. No. Well, the Exeter episode ends badly. Yeah, yeah, it does. does, uh, But also, it expanded the universe. Right. The idea that there were multiple Constitution class ships out there—that was always something. It was. It was an easy way, even though they were bottle shows in a way. Right. It was an easy way to expand the. Oh, and it always felt big. I mean, whether it's the Defiant or uh, you know, uh, in in this with the Exeter, it was always super cool. And that's why I think when the technical manual came out and it listed you the, know, the fleet the other, and the, yeah. the ships and the other ship. That was so cool. You can't imagine, you know, we'll talk about that in the merchandising episode, but when you're a kid, like, it really sparked your imagination that there was this massive universe. Well, and it made you want to get, you know, 13 uh, versions of the AMT kit and build all and the And then fleet. they gave right. them to us. Yeah. They, they put them out with the they decals. They had the sticker, and, right, the right. decals for yeah. each ship. I love how it was at the novelization for Star Trek The Motion Picture where they actually wrote into the fact that all the other Constitution class ships were destroyed. Were destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just simply we couldn't afford any other models or sets. Yeah. It was, oh, yeah. we're, it was we're like special. an Edward we Gorey poem. This is why I'm writing. I'm and writing. that's why they adopted the Delta Shield as Starfleet's right. insignia because right. the Enterprise was the most successful. Yeah. So we do this to honor the mission of the original Enterprise and not to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing down... that there were indeed different insignias for every ship. I just wrote down novelization. We have to do a show about the, the, the gonzo Star Trek... We'll give us time to reread it, the Star Trek, the motion picture novelization, because that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The new humans, and everyone on Earth is having sex, and, and they have the the, the the way they communicate telepathically, and it's just like, man, Roddenberry is like indulging all his vices in that book. I have to tell you that I'm working my way through doing a audiobook version of the motion picture Really? Novel. That could be a special episode of the podcast, like a special it's, report. It's really long. <laughs> By the way, that novelization was great. It's great. It, it is great. I mean, it's cuckoo for. Co- I mean, I mean, it helped understand all the things that were missing from the movie, mm-hmm. you know. And even it doesn't have when he confronts Admiral Lagoras in the book. I don't think that's in there. But like his girlfriend and yeah. beams up and yeah. gets. Yeah. Well, you know all the backstory yeah. because in in thy image it was explained, you know, in the earlier drafts that that was his his girlfriend, you right. know, who's 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 destroyed, which is why he's so morose for about twelve seconds. <laughs> You know, <laughs> well, I'll we'll swing by the Orion one. planet on the way to <laughs> um, But yes, so Star Trek: The Motion Picture, um, the Omega, Omega Glory, Glory. Um, and now we come to you, Mark. Ah, yes. What I, do you say? I set myself up for failure. Sarika Vulcan. Well, I had a, a TOS episode in mind, but I don't want us to become too. Uh, um, which was going to be the Savage Curtain. Nothing can stop that now. And I, well, I, I'll tell you, I had a couple of things in mind. One of them was the Savage Curtain, um, which, uh, of course, uh, we talked about in a previous podcast, uh, you know, what's stronger, good versus evil, um, and, and brilliant performances, Abraham Lincoln and Surak and Colonel Green. But uh, And then I came very close, uh, another third season episode, which I adore, which I, I kind of want to nominate because it was always on the, remember the Best of Trek Collections, those, of those books. Of course, of course you do. I, I and, still read them, <laughs> and and it always they would always do these surveys. What's the worst Star Trek? And it would always be the worst. And I always got really irate because I thought it was offensive. Um, it was Spectre of the Gun, mm. and mm. I think Spectre of the Gun is a great little episode. Yeah. I think it's uh, the the production design. You know how they leaned into the fact they didn't have any money, so they made it. To, the Melkotians can't read all our thoughts, and so <laughs> it's only fragments. And uh, I, I just I love that episode. I love the casting. It's really well directed. The score is great. Um, so I wanted to rush to the defense of Spectre of the Gun. But since this is guilty pleasures, I, I will tell you. I'm not guilty. I stand by that. You know, it's like fuck you. You don't like it too bad. You know. Uh, but um, but I, I do have a guilty pleasure, and that episode is and and uh, uh, second season episode of, of the uh, Next Generation, the Royale. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. It seems like we're trapped in here. Proceed with caution. 
A dangerous mission uncovers a secret alien passage. Welcome to the Hotel Royale. Where the crew become prisoners in a fictional casino that's all too real. Lock onto the landing party. Beam them up. We've got nothing to lock on to, sir. Now, they must gamble with their lives in a deadly game of survival on Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, not the wow. Royale with cheese. This is an episode in I don't which... Know, I think there's plenty of cheese in it. <laughs> Baby needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> the, 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 the Enterprise uh, uh, crew is trapped in a mysterious... Um, Casino in space. <laughs> it sounds like a Marvel Wolfman Marvel comic of uh, Star Trek. You know, like the haunted house in space. Uh, but they can, and they can't get out. And ultimately, they realize they're trapped in a really bad novel. And the only way to uh, get out of this casino is to uh, finish the story. You know, and I, I feel I always say this: it's like they've been trapped in worse episodes before. So why not? That makes sort of a metaphor for the entire Star Trek uh, uh, series. But. Um, it, 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 let me just tell you, it was at this point that I stopped recording them every week. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I mean, I'm not arguing it's a good episode. No, 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 that's good. I'm saying <laughs> that it is, you know, and look, it was uh, the end of, uh, you know, for a while, Tracy Torme, who wrote it, was the golden child on Star Trek. He was Roddenberry's, uh, uh, you know, beloved, heir apparent. Heir yeah. apparent and uh, that, that caused a lot of problems with other people who had their eyes on the prize, especially Maurice Hurley, who ended up getting the nod and who then proceeded to screw with Torme and rewrite his stuff. So he went from having what was largely considered one of the, the, the triumphs, won Star Trek its first Peabody Award, The Big Goodbye. Mm-hmm. So you get to the second season, and after The Schizoid Man, uh, which is an okay episode, uh, you know, Hurley just has his way with Manhunt, which was a sequel to Big Goodbye, and um, and The Royale, and, and you know, eviscerates it. But I, I think that there's so much fun in seeing Data try to understand basically Las Vegas and then constantly trying, I guess this reminded me of the original series, trying to leave the casino and they go into that revolving door and they keep finding themselves back in. And as you said, baby needs a new pair of shoes. I mean, it's just crazy. And then there's this mysterious guy, you know, like a Howard Hughes guy up on, in the penthouse who's this astronaut who crashed here with his You may mark. remember him from Deal or No Deal. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. I mean, and you know, my thing is, there've been so many episodes of Next Generation that are just bad and are not watchable, or, or you know, are slow and lethargic. The Royale is bad, but it's wildly entertaining and I think very watchable. So you know, unlike something like Masks, which is just unwatchable and terrible, this is like watchable and terrible. Masks is great. <laughs> okay, so have you watched the HD version of Sub Rosa? Both of those episodes look so good in oh HD. Oh my god. Help me out here. Give me a terrible Next Generation episode that Rob won't disagree with. Uh, uh, well, I more or less blocked it. Aquiel. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> there we go. It's not like Aquiel, which is just terrible. The dog did it, by the way. Um, but it, it, Code it, of it, honor. Go, I, uh, <laughs> but there's an it's interesting got good music in, it. in that episode. What? Ma- there's an interesting... <clears throat> matriarchal civilization in that episode. There is. You yeah. have no vaccine and, and no, no lieutenant jaw. No treaty. <laughs> That's when I stopped recording them. Oh, that was pretty early. You saved a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> Call me when you get to season three. I, I, God, I wasted so much videotape. I had all seven seasons. Wow. Then I then I bought them on videotape. Then I bought them on DVD. Then I bought them on Blu-ray. I never Come on, dude. Laserdisc. Yeah, oh, that's right. I bought them on Laserdisc, yeah. too. Thanks for I don't reminding think I me. ever bought them on Laserdisc, but I do have them on Blu-ray. And they're all on the trash. And now they're safe on my history. hard drive. For how long? One for EMP. How long? For how long? <laughs> yeah, you know, Blade Runner 2049. There you yeah, go. well. You got bigger we won't problems than the next generation on your hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, um, yeah, that that was my uh, my guilty pleasure. Um, do we want to? Which one of the five that you mentioned? I, I'm going with the Royale. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. But uh, do we want to? Do we want to throw one in that we can all agree on? Should hmm. we find one more before we? Uh... It's the pleasure part of it. I can find. Yeah. <laughs> I can find a lot of ones. Some of which I wrote. <laughs> you know, I have to say that even though it's it's really goofy, uh, there's a the Next Generation episode, the game. Oh, that's a good, good uh, guilty pleasure. I yeah. would agree with that. Ashley Judd. Is oh my God, Wesley's she's she's just freaking amazing. And the she's first time I'd ever uh, seen her in anything, um, and 
it's a it's a fun story. It's a uh, you know it's a, a, a very uh, paranoid. Uh, it's invasion uh, of ice kind of thing. Well, yeah. So and the game really... is strange that they're actually playing. Right. Is yeah. this weirdly erotic bizarreness <laughs> yeah. that even when I was watching, I'm like, okay, who slipped this one by? Well, it is a Brandon Bragg episode. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that is all of his. Uh, yes, all of his obsessions are. Are in that game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of like the game too. I think it's a fun episode. It's it's a you know nice conspiracy thriller, which also raises the issue. And of, Wesley isn't horrible in it. No, no, which he's is not. fascinating to me. Uh, but you know, speaking of invasion of the body snatchers, would this be a guilty pleasure? Or is it just a pleasure conspiracy from the first season? <sighs> Una Carapelides. You, you know, know, I think I would feel a lot better about it if it had actually amounted to anything. But it just turns out to be a, just a big tease that goes nowhere. Well, the, they had wanted to do more with that. And then Rick Berman, for whatever reason. Well, I want to do a lot of things was that against, I don't get to uh, do. But that doesn't mean it's worth it. And then anything. Deep Space Nine toyed with it. And then they did a version of that story that wasn't tied to the conspiracy mythology. Mm-hmm. But I like conspiracy other than that really primitive uh, visual effects of the heads exploding. Doing you know, Star Trek doing David Cronenberg, not a good mix. The first half yeah. is great, though. The, the seven days in May aspect totally. of it all. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's a it's a great setup to something that never happens. That was second season, right? First. first end of first season. End of the first season. It was the end of the first second, season. The and it came out episode. of nowhere. It was just like, wow, this 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 is a weird episode. I mean, it's dark and it's weird and Starfleet's being taken over by parasites and heads are blowing up. It's like, what show is this? <laughs> and you got to yeah. you got to meet other Starfleet captains, which was really right. cool. Una Carapleides, yeah. Trila Scott, who else? <laughs> <laughs> Michael, wasn't Michael Berryman one of them? Yeah, yeah, he was good too. I love that scene where they meet on this mysterious planetoid. And Mustafar. Picard, and, he came back <laughs> and Picard's like, what are all the captains doing here? Like, this must be really bad. It's like this total Seven Days in May vibe. It was great. Yeah. I love all that. I agree. I, I think the beginning of that episode's great. Um, okay, other other guilty pleasures? No, they're all great. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, look, I would say without getting into a long discussion about it, Star Trek V. Okay, I'll go there. You know, my, one of the ideas I toyed with for my guilty pleasure was going to be the odd number films. But, <laughs> that just seemed, uh, but yeah, I mean, three also, you know, I, I feel is underrated. Three really opened up the Star Trek universe. We got to see ships that sure. you know, weren't the Enterprise, weren't the Reliant. I, I, I'll, I'll go back to Trek Five for a second and, and say that I think there are several scenes in that which are the best that has ever been written for the main three characters. Uh, the uh, the scenes where Cybok tries to uh, convince McCoy and Spock to join him is a great scene, mm-hmm. and the uh, the final resolution of Kirk uh, telling Cybok to basically go to hell is. So Kirk and so wonderfully acted and and presented, um, I think it's great. And the scenes with uh, with you know the Holy Trinity sitting around the campfire is uh, is wonderful. Well, everyone hides a secret pain. Well, they do, and sometimes that secret pain is Star Trek Five. I'll I'll uh, I'll try one more because I think I am probably the only person in the in the known universe, unknown known or unknown, that likes this. <laughs> Anyone, maybe Burnett will help me out on this. Um, Deep Space Nine, let he who is without sin. It's where they go to Risa, and uh, religious fundamentalists don't like the pleasure planet very much, and they're trying to sort of overthrow it. And Worf gets co-opted into this uh, plan to uh, sort of overthrow Risa, the, 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 you know, which is basically the shore leave planet in uh, Next Generation. And Captain's Holiday, also an episode that's sort of a guilty pleasure because that thing is a mess too, but... Um, uh, but I let who use without sin, and I know Deep Space Nine fans hate that episode. Now but... this is a this is a canonical question. Do you think that Risa is Wrigley's pleasure planet that just changed their name? Yes, I do think so. I think what happened: the Wrigleys <laughs> got bought out by the Risa family, and they got the naming rights, the sponsorship rights. So instead of it being the Nokia Theater, right. it's now okay. the Microsoft. Theater. Well, I hate to get all canonical on you. Yes. Oh, Risa did make an appearance on Enterprise, which would have been before Wrigley's. Oh, so, yeah. So I suppose it's possible the Risa Corporation owned it, got bought out by Wrigley's. Everyone wanted it to go back to Risa. Uh-huh. Maybe that for yeah. I mean, Risa could have been the name of the, the planet when Wrigley's right. Wrigley's was a company. It was Wrigley's. That Wrigley's came in started for a while. the started the well, kind of like the how the, Kenny, the shoe company Kenny used to own Warner Brothers right. for a while. 
for a while. In the 70s. Yeah. Late right. 60s, 70s. During uh, Clockwork Orange. Yes. You, you know, we're going to get like a Twitter or, or an email or something from somebody saying, you know, it was never, I don't know why you would make that suggestion. It was never, <laughs> clearly you don't know your Star Trek. It was Rise yes. and Wrigley's Player of the Planet, two different things. And it has yeah. nothing to do with the Shirley Planet. I just, I don't think you guys should be doing a show. You're not qualified to talk about Star Trek. And the response to that is, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I look forward to listening to your podcast. <laughs> well, any last uh, suggestion? Those are all wonderful episodes to not watch. Uh, no, no, I'm kidding. Those actually. Uh, so, Rob, alternative factor, Star Trek: The Motion Picture from Michael. Darren suggested the wonderful episode, The Omega Glory, and of course, I suggested what did I suggest? A bunch of episodes, but I would say The Royale. And then we also talked about Star Trek Five and uh, Let He Is Without Sin. And a bunch of other stuff, the game. And uh, I think uh, there's some episodes worth revisiting there. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of revisiting, I hope you'll revisit us here on Inglorious Trexperts. Um, Very lucky to have uh, Rob Burnett with us. Rob, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, You can find me on uh, Instagram at rmburnett or find me on Twitter at burnettrm. And when I soon launch my own YouTube show, Robservations. And where can they find that? On the Burnett Work on YouTube. <laughs> find the so Burnett Work. Check out the Burnett Work, where Rob is launching his new show, Robservations. The show about something. Which is unlike this show, which is about clearly nothing. Uh, Michael Sussman working on a bunch of new projects. Where can they find you on social media? Uh, well, you can email my mom. She can <laughs> bring it down to uh, the on, basement. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I'm on Twitter at underscore Michael Sussman. And Darren? I'm uh, at uh, Darren Doc, 1R. And uh, you can also uh, see some of his fantastic uh, sci-fi logo wear at... Uh, we're still figuring out the uh, the uh, URL, but uh, it's uh, obscuritiesspreadshirt.com. And you can enjoy more of Darren's insights on the 430 Movie Podcast. And uh, you can follow Inglorious Trexperts at Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, I'm Mark A. Altman. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Mark A. Altman. And if you want to know more about my book with Ed Gross, The 50-Year Mission, also at 50-Year Mission Book on Twitter as well, uh, along with Volume 2, both available, as well as So Say We All, an oral history of Battlestar Galactica on sale wherever books are sold. So on behalf of Rob, Michael, Darren, and myself, thank you for joining us for this episode of Inglorious Trexperts. We'll see you again soon. Shh. Engage. Sweetheart, I'll be watching all.